Can you remember the first time you fell in love? <laughs> for, for me, it was the summer after my sophomore year of high school. I was working at a summer camp, and I met Lydia. What an exotic name. And so I asked her for a moonlit walk, and I held her hand as we walked, and I brought her back to her cabin, and the stars were out, and we stood under this massive oak tree, and I looked her in the eye and, and said, I love you. And the next week, a new high school worker showed up at camp by the name of Marcia, and I immediately fell out of love with Lydia and in love with Marcia, uh, which was not unusual because every guy in the camp was in love with Marcia. She was beautiful. And we started arguing amongst ourselves as to who would be the first to get a date with Marcia. And when, when you're working at summer camp, there are not a, a lot of options for dates. Moonlit Walk is about it. And so I bet my buddies... I said, I will bet you that I'll be the first to get a date with Marsha, hold her hand, and kiss her goodnight. And so we bet. We bet this uh, milkshake. So if I do this, you guys owe me a milkshake at the camp canteen. And if I don't pull this off, then I owe you milkshakes at the uh, camp canteen. So everybody agreed to this. I asked Marsha for a moonlit walk, and she said yes. So we're out walking, and I reach for her hand, part of the deal here, and she pulls it away. Now, I did this several more times. About the third or fourth time I did it, she looked at me and she said, I know about your bet and you're going to lose. <laughs> One of the, the most awkward moments of my life. So the next day, I had to buy all my buddies a milkshake at the camp canteen, and I fell out of love with Marcia. Now that I'm older and wiser, I realize that uh, I had a lot to learn about true love as a summer camp sophomore. And that's our subject today as we look into God's Word. True love. What's true love? So take your Bible, turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. And you want to fill in your outline as we go along, so grab a pen, grab the outline in your program so you could jot down what God teaches you about true love. That's why he brought you here today. He wants to tell you something about true love. This is the sixth installment in a 12-part study of this New Testament epistle, 1 John. And uh, by the way, we're going to take, I'm turning you to 1 John 3, we're, we're going to take today's text out of chronological order. All right, this, this text talks about true love, and I programmed it for this weekend because I knew we'd be highlighting our community impact ministry, which is all about showing love to desperately needy people. So it seemed appropriate to study true love from Scripture. We should be taking a previous passage for today that begins at the end of chapter 2, but we're going to do that next week. So I, I apologize if it really wigs you out to take things out of chronological order. So if you're OCD about this, uh, we'll pray for you afterwards, okay? So, a uh, little bit of, uh, of review. I am a disciple is the name of the series because John is painting a picture for us in 1 John of what it means to be a Christ follower, what a Christ follower looks like. So you could say, I'm a Christ follower, and John would look at you and say, well, talk is cheap. Prove it. You say, well, prove it? What do you mean? How do you prove it? John would say, I've got three tests for you. If you've been here so far in the series, you know about these three tests because they keep popping up in passage after passage. One or the other of the tests will rear its head. First test is theological. Okay, What do you believe about Jesus? Because true Christ followers believe that Jesus Christ is God's Son come in the flesh to earth. Okay, That's the theological test. Uh, Eric, Pastor 
Eric Ferris spoke about this last weekend from 1 John chapter 2. Second test is the moral test. Are you walking in obedience to God's commands? Do you study his word, make a habit out of reading this book and applying its principles to your life? That's the moral test. Third test, let me ask you, what's the third test? I'm hearing it, the social test. Are you loving other people, especially difficult to love people? A couple of weekends ago, we looked at a passage where the love test, the social test popped up. And you might recall how I concluded that service. I said, if you're having difficulty loving an unlovable person in your life, I'd like you to call out for help. Ask God to give you his love by coming forward at the end of the service during the closing song, standing at the front, and I'm going to pray for you. And hundreds of people at our four campuses came up to be prayed for. Now, now today we're going to go back to another love passage, another social test passage, 1 John chapter 3. How do you know you're a Christ follower? You can pass the love test. Now, before you say, well, no problem, I'm a loving person, John, John would say, not so fast, let me describe what true love looks like, because it's not this cheesy summer camp infatuation. Let me describe what true love looks like. This is how true love shows up in a person's life. He, he tells us three ways in which it shows up. And so before you give yourself a passing grade on the love test, you've got to ask yourself the question, is love showing up in my life in these three ways? So what are those three ways? Here's number one. True love shows up in contrast to worldly hatred. Write that down. True love shows up in contrast to worldly hatred. I'm going to read the first few verses of today's text to you. Pick it up at verse 11 of 1 John chapter 3. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Don't be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love one another. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. John begins his description of, of true love by, by telling us what it doesn't look like. True love, John says, is the exact opposite of worldly hatred. And then John gives us a biblical example of worldly hatred, Cain. And the story of Cain and his brother Abel, two sons of Adam and Eve. Uh, you could read it for yourself in Genesis chapter 4. It's a relatively brief story. These two brothers bring offerings to God. Okay? Cain brings an offering, the, the fruit of his fields. He's a farmer. Abel brings an offering, the firstborn of his flocks, he's a shepherd. And God rejects Cain's offering and warmly accepts Abel's offering. This is how scripture describes it, Genesis 4, verses 4 and 5. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. Now, you, you read that and you, you ask, you know, why, why did God reject Cain's offering and accept Abel's offering? And the answer is, Genesis doesn't tell us. Now, we can surmise it had something to do with instructions God must have given these guys ahead of time, instructions that Abel obeyed and Cain disobeyed. 
Because in the very next verse of Genesis 4, God says to Cain, if you'll just do what's right, Cain, buddy, if you'll just do what's right, you and your offering will be accepted. So Cain wasn't doing the right thing, but Cain was too angry to obey God. He hates Abel for being the recipient of God's favor. And that hatred builds and builds until one day Cain comes across Abel in the field and he starts beating him. And once he starts beating him, he can't stop until Abel is dead. Cain kills Abel. So what do we learn from this story about worldly hatred? What do we learn about worldly hatred that's the opposite of true love? Well, we learn that this hatred originates from the resentment we feel towards someone who's been favored in some way that we haven't been. Let me repeat that. Worldly hatred originates from a resentment that we feel towards someone who's been favored in some way that we haven't been. That's why Cain hated Abel. Let, let, let me give you some examples of this today. Let's say you're a student, middle school, high school student. You know, do, do you resent a classmate who gets the algebra that you don't get? It's like they've been blessed with math brains and you haven't. Or do you resent the classmate who made the cheerleading squad that you were cut from? Or, or the one who's got a date to the prom when, when you have none? Or how about at work, do you resent the competitor who has more customers than you have or a better location or a more popular product? Do you resent a coworker who got a raise that you didn't get? Or the boss who gets to have the final say about matters and you don't? You're out on the road, you're a driver, and you're, you're driving behind someone who's driving so thick and slow. Do you resent the fact that he makes it through the green light and you get stopped as it turns red? Yeah, I figured I'd hit on one that you could identify with. Yeah, how about in the world of politics? Do you, do you resent it when your candidate isn't favored with the most votes and some, so, some knucklehead, some guy with evil policies ends up in office, not your guy? You, you see how this works? Somebody gets something we don't get. Could be good looks, could be a promotion, could be he gets two weeks in Hawaii and you got a week at the Holodome in Joliet, you know, could be that she gets into the college of her choice and you're going to the local community college, could be they got custody of the kids, you didn't, they got an answer to prayer, you didn't get an answer to your prayer, they got a championship sports team in their city and you get, yeah, the Cubs. Yeah. And, and so you resent them. And that resentment, if unchecked, becomes hatred. And hatred, if unrestrained, becomes murder. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, oh, okay, I can buy the fact that there's some resentment going on in my life. I can think of some, some people I resent. And in some cases, maybe it borders on hatred. But I would never murder them. Okay, let me push back on your objection in a couple of ways. First, let me ask you to consider what Jesus says about hatred and its relationship to murder in his famous Sermon on the Mount. This is Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry 
He's talking about hatred here. Anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus taught that hatred, even if it never becomes murder, is still the root cause of murder. Hatred, murder, they come from the same gene pool, which is why God takes hatred so seriously. Second pushback to your objection that hatred, your hatred is a long way from murder, is that while hatred may never push you to the point of actually killing somebody, there are other ways you can do people harm. You know, you could kill a person's reputation without killing them, right? Just a little, little bit of gossip, a little talking behind the scenes at work or school or about somebody who's not present. Or, or you could do property damage or You could get them fired. You could verbally abuse them. Your hatred will find an outlet. Hatred's dangerous stuff. Don't think that you can harbor it as a submerged feeling without it becoming a hurtful action. Hatred will find an outlet. If you watched any of the Winter Olympic Games... uh, There was this recurring news story that illustrates the point I've just been making here. It was the 20th anniversary of some major crazy debacle from the 1994 Olympics. You know what I'm talking about? The whole deal between Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding. And so they're they're playing it again because this is 20 years later and people are still talking about it. If you were there back then and and you watched the games, you might recall that Nancy Kerrigan had favor, right? She she had elegance. She had class. She had social savvy. She was the darling. She was the person favored to win the gold. She had what Tanya Harding didn't have. And Tanya resented it and decided to eliminate Nancy from the games and conspired, hired a hitman to break her leg. And of course, the hitman tried to do it, and he whacked Nancy Kerrigan's leg, and it didn't break. And then, oh my goodness, a brouhaha. If you remember the 1994 Olympic Games in Norway, that was the big story. Not who won gold, but this whole deal was the story. 20 years later, we're still retelling the story. Worldly hatred okay, begins with resentment. Is there anybody that you resent today? And is there danger that that resentment is drifting toward hatred and an intent to do harm? And even if you're not the one who does harm, you just like to see something bad happen to that person. Now, true love, true love stands in contrast to worldly hatred. That's how you know if you pass the true love test. So you're repenting of resentment before it becomes hatred leading leading to harm. You get it? Number two, true love shows up in Christ-like self-sacrifice. Let's go back to the text. Christ-like self-sacrifice. Pick up 1 John 3 at verse 16. This is how we know what love is. This is true love. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, How can the love of God be in that person? 
Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Okay, if Cain is the poster child for worldly hatred, then Jesus Christ is the poster child, no irreverence intended there, for true love. How did Jesus show that love? Look at verse 16 again. This is how we know what love is. Christ laid down his life for us. That's what true love looks like. Now, why did Jesus die? Because he looked at us and he saw we were in deep trouble. He saw that we were separated from a holy God by our sin. And it's not good to be separated from God, the giver of life. The penalty is death. The wages of sin, Romans 6, 23 says, the wages of sin is death, eternal death. So Jesus died to take the death we deserve. When Jesus died on the cross, he was taking the penalty that our sins deserve. And he can now offer you, if you'll surrender your life to him, he can offer you forgiveness and new life. That's true love. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. See, worldly hatred seeks the other person's harm. True love seeks the other person's well-being. Worldly hatred leads to activities against others. True love leads to activities for others, even to the point of self-sacrifice. Christ laid down his life for us. Does this truth move you? Does it occasionally bring tears to your eyes, tears of gratitude? Christ laid down his life for me. Are you amazed by what Christ has done for you? About a hundred years ago, a songwriter by the name of Charles Gabriel sat down and he penned the lyrics to a hymn that we still sing today at Christ Community Church. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus, the Nazarene, and I wonder how he could love me, a sinner, condemned, unclean. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore this burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. And then the chorus you break out with, how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. You know, until we, listen friends, until we are wrecked, until we are wrecked by the self-sacrificing love of Jesus Christ, we will not be inclined, we will not be motivated, not be driven to do what John challenges us in today's passage to do in response to Christ's love, which is what? It's to love others in the same way that we've been loved. It's to show self-sacrificing love to others. In fact, John doesn't just challenge us to follow Jesus' example. Go back to verse 16. John tells us that if we're Christ followers, we're obligated. We are obligated to follow the example of self-sacrificing love. Look at the second half of verse 16. Circle the word ought in your Bible. John writes, since Christ laid down his life for us, we ought. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That word ought can also be translated from the Greek as must. We must. We must lay down our lives for others. You following John's argument here? If you've, ex if you've experienced Christ's self-sacrificing love for you, you know, there is now this inner compulsion. You just got to show this love to others. 
Let's say that you have this, this driving sense of mustness. I must. I've got to. Well, what do you do with it? Well, the operative word is do. See, self-sacrificing love is not just about feeling something. It's not just about saying something. It's about doing something. Go back to verse 18 that I read a moment ago. John says, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with what? Actions and in truth. Self-sacrificing love is about actions. Now, in order to pull those actions off, you're going to need a couple of things going for you, okay? And John describes what those two things are back in verse 17. The first of the, the two things that you're going to need, if you're going to show self-sacrificing love to others, you're going to need resources. Look at the opening line of verse 17. John says, so if anyone has material possessions, stop right there. Okay, if you're going to show self-sacrificing love to somebody else, it's going to cost you something. You're going to have to make an investment. John calls it here material possessions. Interestingly, in the original Greek text, that expression is the word bio, from which, which we get our English life. Okay, biology is the study of life, right? You need some bio, John says. You need some life stuff if you're going to love others self-sacrificially. Say, like what? Well, you're going to need, uh, you're going to need some money to do this. And not just a token amount, some life-sustaining, some bio money. We know that the biblical... The biblical standard is, is what? It's a tithe. It's, you take the first 10% of your paycheck and you give it to the Lord's work to meet the spiritual and physical needs of other people. You say, that's a lot of money. It is. And, and there's no reason in your right mind you would do this unless you've been so impacted by the self-sacrificial love of Christ for you that you say, it's going to cost me some money, but I'm going to do it. And so you, you make a, an income of $50,000, do the math, $5,000, put in the offering bag. But it doesn't stop there. That's like the starting place. You know, may, maybe you, you write out a check for a local homeless shelter. Maybe you give monthly to the support of an orphan through an organization like, like Compassion. You know, maybe you pay for the car repairs of a friend who's out of work. Self-sacrificing love costs money, and it costs time. I mean, imagine you pull out this huge checkbook, okay? This is, this is not a checkbook that draws money from your bank account. This is a checkbook that draws hours from your week. So how many hours do you have in that checkbook? 7 times 24, 168, if I did my math correctly. We all get the same amount. Now, let's say that, that God moves you. He gives you a love for children. You watch a video like what we showed earlier in our service about adoption and foster care, and you're ready to write the big check. You're ready to say, I would like to give a child who doesn't have a family a place in my home. You write out that big check. You say, well, I can't afford that much time. Well, what kind of check could you write out? Could you write out a, a check for an hour or two a week? And get involved in Kids Hope, and we'll connect you with some at-risk child in one of our local schools, our public schools, and you'll meet with that child, and you'll just hang out for an hour a week. Can you write that check? 
See, no matter what you decide to do by way of self-sacrificing love, you, you can't do it without an expenditure of time. Whether you're shoveling a neighbor's drive, which God help us, we won't have to do anymore for, for a year, or whether you're visiting your aunt in the nursing home or you're leading a Bible study at the local jail, it's going to cost you some time. Here, here's another resource. you got money, you got time. It's going to cost you the use of your skills. I don't know if you've ever thought of your skills as a resource that God's given you so you can love other people. So whether you have athletic skills or sewing skills, organizational skills, computer skills, construction skills, cooking skills, have you ever, ever thought of those skills not merely as a means of making a paycheck, which is a good use, but have you thought of giving them away freely to someone who's desperately needy? That, that's self-sacrificing love. You need resources to pull it off, and God has given you resources. He's given you life stuff. He's given you money. He's given you time. He's given you skills. What are you doing with them? Now, there's something else you need. There's a second thing you need besides these resources. You're going to need opportunities. Go, go back to verse 17. John says, if anyone has material possessions, that's resources, and sees a brother or sister in need. Stop there. we got to be able to see a brother or sister in need. We've got to see the opportunity. We can't go through life with, with, with our eyes closed. We've got to move beyond our suburban tendency to insulate ourselves from needy people. I was reading my news magazine this past week, and there's a, there's a section in the magazine called People. It's usually about celebrity types. And so there was this article about Miley Cyrus. Why in the world would I read an article about Miley Cyrus? Well, I did. And according to the article, she says if, if given the choice, she would never, ever leave her mansion in the Hollywood Hills. Why, why even go out to a movie? She said to a reporter, I've got a huge expletive TV and a chef that makes great food. I'd just rather be here where I'm completely locked in. Can you say self-absorbed, Miley? <laughs> Which is the exact opposite of self-sacrificing, self-absorbed. But before I bash Miley, I better look in the mirror because you know what? I see those same tendencies towards self-absorption in my own life. You know, I, I get focused on my agenda. I get cocooned in my own world so that I miss the needs of people right around me. In fact, I'll just admit to you that sometimes they could be staring me in, in the face and I just I don't recognize them for what they are, an opportunity to demonstrate self-sacrificing love. And, and maybe you're like me. Maybe as I'm, I'm preaching God's word today, you, you, there's an agitation going inside. You say, I'd like to show this kind of love to others, but where do you find these, where do you find these desperately needy people? Let, let, let me suggest... Three sorts of opportunities that you might come across. The, the first is through our second Saturday. Now, unfortunately, I'm telling you this on the very weekend that we had second Saturday. So you just missed one yesterday, okay? But I'd encourage you to jot it down. Jot down second Saturday on your calendar for next month for April. Our community impact team, what they do is they put together uh, several different projects it may be a nursing home, it may be a home for disabled people, it may be a homeless shelter, it may be a food pantry, 
And you, you go online before the second Saturday, you'll see the opportunities to serve. You show up at 8.15 at one of our campuses, and by noon, we got you back home. So it's a, it's a half day of serving desperately needy people. Now, I'll tell you what I love about second Saturday. Personally, I'm just not creative when it comes to coming up with opportunities to serve needy people. Now, some of you are. You know, you, you, you see things and you dive in. I don't. And so I love the fact that the community impact team has done that work for me. They put together the projects. Now all I got to do is plug and play. And I'll tell you, on those occasions when I plug and play, one of the things that amazes me is so often people tell me, how can you do what you do, stand in front of hundreds of people and speak? It would wig me out. And, you know, I go to a second Saturday and say I go to a home for disabled people. What amazes me is people who do stuff I'm terribly awkward at myself. You know, they just come right alongside a person who needs help and begin to play a game or whatever, and I'm standing there with my hands in my pocket, not sure what to do. Some of you, God is gifted to do this in a special way. So again, right second Saturday, if you missed it, you'll forget by next April what God's stirring in your heart right now, those embers will die down. So put it on your calendar, on your phone, in your daytimer, right now, second Saturday in April. And ju just an aside here, Sometimes people will say to me after a sermon, how come oftentimes in your sermon, when you get to the application part, it's always got something to do with a program, a ministry of Christ Community Church? You know, is this one big infomercial for the church? Guilty as charged. And it's done very intentionally. Because you see, the, the whole reason for any program we design around here is to give you an outlet to put into practice some biblical principle. So if the principle is showing self-sacrificing love to others, we want to come alongside you and help you any, any way we can. So if you could do this on your own, don't bother with our program. Okay, if you could look back in the last month and say, well, I did this and I did that and I showed self-sacrificing love and I come, came up alongside needy people and this is what I... Good, you don't need Second Saturday. But if you're like me, you probably could use some help. And so I'd say sign up. And show up. Now, there's a second way you could do it. You could spot opportunities. Besides Second Saturdays, you can do this through your community group. In fact, we just did a survey. We found that in the past six months, 40% of our community groups identified a project where they could serve together. And they, you know, they came up with a needy person who could be served. They rolled up their sleeves and they did it. They showed some genuine self-sacrificing love. You say, like, what? What did they do? Well, you know, in some cases, it was showing that love to a member of their group. And that's a great way to begin. In fact, as you look at the passage that we're studying today, you see John saying repeatedly that we ought to be showing this kind of love for brothers and for sisters. You know, it ought to start within the body of Christ. And so some groups, I think of a women's group, you know, one of their newest members was a young mom with pancreatic cancer. And as she was dying, they came around her and they cared for her in very tangible ways. In fact, the day before she passed away, they, they literally sang her into the presence of Jesus. Or I think about a guy who was in a couples group, discouraged because he'd been out of work for some time. And what frustrated him is he didn't have enough money to get the odd jobs done on his house that needed doing, the general upkeep. 
And the community group knew that. And so they waited for a time when he was away from home on a Saturday. And they showed up. They showed up with their families. They showed up with tools. And they trimmed hedges and cleaned gutters and did all sorts of work. And then they took off before he got home. According to his wife, he just wept when he saw it. And then there are things that community groups do outside of their group. I think of a women's group I, I, I know of as a group member who works with children who need an advocate, uh, neglected kids, abused kids. She was sharing with her group, you know, the, the heartbreak is that sometimes these children have to be removed from a dysfunctional home at a moment's notice. And so all you could do is take all their belongings and dump them in a trash bag and walk off. See, how undignified. How, you know, it adds insult to injury. Everything you own is in this black trash bag. And the community group heard this, and these ladies went out and purchased 50 brand new suitcases of every shape, size, color, and gave them to the organization for children to use. Or think about a guy's group that meets for Bible study on Monday nights. They meet three weeks out of the month for Bible study. On the second Monday of every month, they go to the local nursing home. Now, they stop on the way and they pick up a bunch of donuts and milkshakes. Get those seniors jacked up on sugar, right? <laughs> yes. And they show up and after they eat, they play Yahtzee and they tell stories and they listen to stories and they pray for everybody who's willing to let them pray for them. See, these stories are so inspiring. So you got Second Saturdays, you got community groups. By the way, if you're a community group leader and it's been a while since your group has done something by way of self-sacrificing love, I'd encourage you, even this week, talk about it. What are we going to do? And then there's your neighborhood. You know, how do you show self-sacrificing love to your neighbors? Well, you can't if you don't even know them. For years, Sue and I, we knew like four or five of our neighbors, you know, typical scene, you know, the people on either side, people across the street, over the backyard fence, that's about it. And then Christ Community Church introduced us to a program called Canning Hunger. You've heard me talk about this before, and I'll just keep beating the drum for it because it's been so wonderful for us. You know, three, four times a year, every few months, we, we roll down the street with our little red wagon and we go door to door collecting canned goods for the local food pantry. Now, we let people know a week ahead of time, used to do it through a letter, drop the letter off at everybody's house, saying, we're coming next week. Now I've got all their emails, collected their emails over time, so it's a real simple matter to let them know we're on our way next week. We collect canned goods, usually collect somewhere between two and 300 pounds of canned goods for the local food pantry. That's meeting the needs of desperately hungry people. But on top of it, Instead of knowing four or five neighbors, we know the 26 families who live on our block. We know about their kids, and we know about their jobs, because every time we have a conversation with them at their door, we, we go home and we write it down in a journal so we can care for these people, we can pray for these people. Yeah. If, if you're having a difficult time getting to know your neighbors, I would recommend canning hunger to you as a way to do it. Opportunities. If you're going to demonstrate Christ-like self-sacrifice, you're going to need resources, Money, time, skills, you're going to need opportunities, whether that's Second Saturdays or through your community group or just, you know, freelancing it in your neighborhood. True love shows up in Christ-like self-sacrifice. Number three, true love shows up in confidence before God. 
confidence before God. Look at verse 19, 1 John 3. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God's greater than our hearts. He knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God. Circle the word confidence there in verse 21. It's the theme of this closing paragraph of 1 John 3. We have confidence before God and we receive from God anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. Specifically, John, of course, is referring to this command to love other people. And this is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know, this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. In this closing paragraph of chapter 3, John tells us that when we demonstrate true love toward others, it gives us confidence before God. Look again at verse 19. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in God's presence. See, we gain confidence that we belong to the truth when we're really loving people, self-sacrificially loving people. I mean, there, there will be times, John warns us, not once but twice in this passage, he, he warns us there will be times when our hearts will condemn us. Verses 20 and 21 says it twice. In, in other words, there will be times when we'll wonder to ourselves, you know, am I really a Christ follower is Jesus really my Savior, my King? Does the Holy Spirit of God really live in me? What should you do when you're wrestling with those kinds of doubts? How do you put your heart to rest? What's John's advice here? Does he say, hey, if you're struggling with that, here's what to do. Look in the mirror and say three times, I do belong to the truth. I do belong to the truth. I do belong. Is that what John says? No, he says, if you got doubts about whether you really belong to the truth, are really in relationship with Jesus, take a look at your life for any signs of real love. Are there worldly resentments that you're turning your back on in favor of loving people? Are there self-sacrificial acts that you're engaging in? If so, you could say with confidence, I do belong to the truth. Now, conversely, John would say if you look at your life and you're, you're, you're not seeing this stuff, you're not seeing self-sacrificial acts, you're not seeing a forsaking of worldly resentments, then, then John would say you, you, you got a problem here and you probably need to go back to the beginning and fix it by surrendering to Christ. You need to surrender to Christ. Don't fool yourself. You know, I, I love the way that someone posed this principle as a question. They said, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? It's a great question, isn't it? Not, not could you object? No, I believe this. I believe that. No. Is there evidence, self-sacrificial love that you could point to? Evidence that would convict you of being a follower of Jesus? The, the second kind of confidence that John wants us to have before God is confidence that our prayers will be answered. Look again at verses 21 and 22. 1 John 3, 21. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Now listen, and receive from him anything we ask because, 
Because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. Now, at first reading, it sounds like John is suggesting that we make a deal with God, that we kind of buy God off. Okay, if you want answers to prayer, here's how you get them, John says. You know, follow his commands. Do acts of self-sacrificing love. It works just like coupons at Jewel, right? You save the coupons, you turn them in, and you get a gift. So in this case, you save up some self-sacrificing acts of love, and you present five of them to God, and he gives you one big answer to prayer. Is that what John's saying here? Now, I think it looks more like this. Let's suppose, and by the way, as I tell this, I'm going to ask our worship teams at our campuses, come on out on the platform. We're going to close in a moment with an offering, an act of self-sacrificial love, and singing a song of, of worship. Let's suppose that you're the parent of a toddler. Now, some of you don't have, have to suppose because you are. And one day, you're watching your little angel play with a buddy, and that buddy takes one of your child's toys, and your child's immediate response is to reach over, grab it, and say, Mine! Okay, now, now imagine that you're at a, a toy store the next day. How inclined are you going to be to buy your child a new toy? So I think you're going to be more inclined to take what they got, pack it up in boxes, put it in a closet until they can learn to share, right? That's how you're feeling as a mom or a dad. Different scenario. You, your child is playing with a buddy, your toddler, and, and the buddy begins to cry, missing mommy, whatever. And you watch as your little angel picks up their favorite toy and says, here, you can have this, don't cry. Now, what are you inclined to do at the toy store for your child? You think you'd buy a new toy to replace the one they gave away? I'll bet you would. You follow where this analogy is going? When God looks at us and he sees us withholding acts of self-sacrificing love toward others, I don't think he's particularly inclined to answer our prayers. When God looks at us and he sees us laying down our lives for others, investing our money and time and skills, looking for opportunities through Second Saturdays in community groups and in our neighborhood, I think God looks at us and says, now that's my son, that's my daughter. What can I do for you? True love. How do you pass the true love test? Well, true love shows up in contrast with worldly hatred. You're forsaking resentments before they become hatred. True love shows up in Christ-like self-sacrifice. True love shows up in the confidence you feel before God. I could look at my life and there's evidence. I do belong to the truth. And I could be assured that God is going to be interested in hearing my prayers because he sees me being a channel of his love to others. You get it? 